Space is cold, really cold. What happens to the very tiny world of atoms when they are so far away from any sun? 10 billion times colder than the core of your body is now on the International Space Station. Hi, I'm Jim Green, and this is a new season of Gravity Assist. We're gonna explore the inside workings of NASA in making these fabulous missions happen. with Ethan Elliott, and he is an atomic physicist and research technologist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. He's been working on Cold Atom Laboratory, a really neat piece of research up on the International Space Station, and it's operating right now. Welcome, Ethan, to Gravity Assist. Thank you, Jim. Very excited to be here. What exactly is the Cold Atom Lab, Ethan, and, and what's it trying to do up in space? So it's a, a self-contained lab uh, that includes all the seven lasers, all the electronics, and the ultra-high vacuum chamber needed to cool atoms to under a billionth of a degree above absolute zero. Uh, it was installed on the interior of the ISS in June of 2018, so it's been operating for about uh, three years. Uh, it's created the first Bose-Einstein condensate in orbit and demonstrated the first atom interferometer in orbit. So when you talk about the Bose-Einstein condensates, what exactly do you mean? The Bose-Einstein condensate takes its name from uh, two physicists, you know, we're pretty familiar with Einstein. And Einstein predicted the condensate, but all of that work was based on the work of a, an Indian physicist, uh, Bose, who very generally worked out uh, these, these quantum uh, statistics that predicted uh, not just uh, the BC, but you know, the, 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 this whole range of physics involving photons at the time in, in 1925. And you know, he sent this paper to Einstein and Einstein realized, oh, wow, there, there, there's really something here and you know, officially translated it into to German himself. And uh, that's kind of where Einstein's name get, get attached to it. It's, uh, it's a fifth state of matter beyond solid, liquid, gas, and plasma. Uh, but fundamentally, we describe it as a macroscopic quantum object. And I realize that's the kind of answer that gives scientists a bad name because it raises uh, 10 more questions. All right, so what is a macroscopic uh, quantum object? So a, a quantum object follows the laws of quantum mechanics, which were rules uh, scientists discovered when they started studying the smallest objects in the universe, like electrons. They found they could behave like waves and particles. And that, that's very strange because we know waves and particles are different things. When particles collide, they bounce off of each other. Uh, but when waves collide, they can move through each other or waves can be in different places at once. And by trapping and cooling atoms, we can exploit a law that quantum mechanics applies not just to the smallest, but also to the coldest. Uh, advances in technology and techniques over the last um, you know, 40 years have allowed us to reach these temperatures uh, where we can actually amplify quantum mechanics. So in science fiction terms, we can't shrink something down and enter the quantum realm but we can enlarge the quantum realm itself. And the experimental machines that do this 
work better in microgravity. And that's where the ISS comes in. Another way to think about cold atoms in space is that the cold gives you the amplification of quantum mechanics, while the free fall of the ISS gives you an extension of the amount of time you have to interact with gravity. So that's like a kind of an amplification of gravity. So when we say cold, how cold is it? And how do you work so hard to make it at that temperature? Uh, so when we, when we say cold, we're talking a billionth, less than a billionth of a degree above absolute zero. So you think, oh, you know, one degree above absolute zero, that, that sounds pretty cold. This is a billion times colder than that. And the way that we reach these temperatures we actually have to start by getting the atoms hot. We take a, a solid piece of metal, uh, we heat that to about 700 degrees Kelvin and uh, make a metal vapor. Uh, and once that's done, uh, the first stage of cooling uh, uses laser light to corral the atoms near the center of our, of our vacuum chamber. Lasers uh, cool the atoms. They're then loaded into a container uh, with walls that are made out of magnetic fields. And these uh, magnetic fields give the atoms a frictionless bowl to uh, evaporate in, kind of like a, like a hot cup of coffee. So the atoms collide with each other, they exchange energy, and a portion of the atoms accumulate enough energy to escape over the walls of the trap, taking that energy away with them and leaving the remaining atoms colder. Uh, and eventually, the evaporation will stagnate when the sample of atoms is you know, cooled so much that no atoms can build up enough energy to escape. Uh, but we force the evaporation process to continue uh, by sending in very specifically tuned radio waves or microwaves. And this frequency is chosen so that the atoms can reach a particular magnetic field where they will have the orientation of their electrons relative to the nucleus altered in a way that changes them from magnetically attractive to magnetically repulsive, ejecting them from the trap. And because this slices out the hottest atoms from the trap, we call this an RF knife. And uh, as the temperature drops there, that's where we get into the range of a billionth of a degree above absolute zero, as there's strange behavior or really quantum mechanical behavior uh, starts, to, starts to happen. So what a Bose-Einstein condensate really is, is when enough of the atoms get into this lowest energy state with the largest wavelength so that you have this collection of ultra-cold atoms with the same wavelength that as far as quantum mechanics is concerned is the same atom. Wow, that sounds fantastic. So why do scientists care so much about studying atoms when they get so close and cold in that Bose-Einstein condensate regime? Yeah, so there are three broad categories of, uh, of uses for ultra-cold atoms and many kinds of experiments in each category. And that's one of the reasons why CAL is a, uh, a multi-user instrument. And different scientists uh, want to use it for different things. So you can use ultra-cold atoms, one, for fundamental science. You know, there's always a state-of-the-art quantum calculation that needs checking. Uh, you can also... Number two, use the control and organization that you get by cooling atoms to arrange them into models for other systems in nature, you know, such as the lattices of a superconducting metal or the interior of a neutron star. Uh, or third reason you can use uh, atoms themselves as probes of inertial forces. 
by uh, inertial forces, I mean, uh, accelerations, rotations, or gravity. And, and gravity in particular is what uh, really gets physicists interested and you know, raises the, the single eyebrow. Ethan, last year NASA reported that your project and, and all the people in your organization were able to create that fifth state of matter up on the International Space Station. How did you feel when that occurred? Uh, I mean, it, it, it felt amazing. You know, there, there was so much work leading up to this. You know, that, that rocket's leaving when that, that rocket's leaving. Uh, so a lot, of, uh, a lot of late nights to, uh, to get everything working. And then, you know, once uh, the atoms uh, were on the, on the ISS, there are, you know, all these different stages to checking out the, uh, the instrument, making that each part of it, making sure that each part of it works. Um, I mean, when the instrument was first powered and, you know, there's just a, a green LED that comes on for the first time, you know, the, oh, the, you know, the whole room is going, <laughs> going nuts that, you know, you just got this little, little light on. Um, but yeah, so when it, when it comes to actually observing these, uh, these ultra cold atoms, yeah, how, so how, how do you observe something this cold? Uh, we actually make the uh, sample of ultra cold atoms and then we send in a final laser beam that blows the the cloud apart but the atoms that were there cast a shadow uh on a, a camera behind this uh this laser beam and that's how we we tell what the atoms are doing tell whether there's a, a bose einstein condensate there or, or not we start getting these first pictures down that look like they have the bec spike at the center. And, you know, the, the physicists in the room are just starting to glance back and forth at each other, you know, and kind of say through our teeth, like, oh, is that, is that it? Like that, that, that could be it. Oh boy. <laughs> you know, and then, and, and then, okay, well, all right, you know, play it cool. Let's, let's get a, get a couple more of these, you know, make sure it's, make sure it's repeatable. Oh, okay. All right. That, that could really be it. And yeah, that was a, a great, a great moment. But then, you know, then you do have to do your, your scientific due diligence. But now this has got to stand up to, to peer review. What's the temperature? Uh, what, how, do, how, does the, uh, how does the BC flow when we shut the, shut the trap off? So, yeah, that was, that was a very ex exciting time. Well, since then, how many times have you gotten these atoms in that state, that fifth state of matter? that Bose-Einstein condensate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it is a mouthful. Um, the, you know, it, it, it starts out as this, uh, you know, as this huge, as this huge milestone. Um, and, then it, and then it just turns into a, uh, a daily occurrence. So now when the instrument is started up each day, um, there is a, a warm-up period for our, our lasers. And the, the first stage of, of cooling is this laser cooling to load atoms into the, the magnetic trap. And then the, the next step is, okay, you know, confirm that there's a, a BEC. And that's kind of our, you know, our, 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 our daily standard, our daily gate for them starting in on bidet science. Uh, that's fantastic. Well, once you get them in that state, these several thousand atoms, what are some of the measurements that you do next? 
Well, yeah, I, I, so I talked about these, uh, these three broad uses for ultra-cold atoms, uh, fundamental science, simulating other systems, and using the atoms themselves to, uh, to make measurements. And that brings us to that, something we call an atom interferometer. So an interferometer uh, detects uh, the interference of waves to make measurements. It's an interferometer, right? And uh, we can now use the quantum mechanical waves that we've created. So we've taken matter and you know, forced it to have a, a wavelength. We can use the interference of these waves to give extremely precise measurements of inertial forces like accelerations, rotations, and gravity. And as physicists, we are very interested in gravitational measurements. And scientists don't understand how to combine our best description of gravity, which is general uh, relativity, with quantum mechanics, which is our, our, our best description of the macroscopic world. Uh, you know, general relativity says that uh, you know, mass distorts space-time and moves around in a curved space-time. Uh, but quantum mechanics says that, you know, mass can also be a wave and kind of, you know, be in, in two different places at once. And how to combine that, we don't, don't really know how to, how to do yet. And if there's a problem with these theories, um, it's not... You know, it's not the logical steps of the theories themselves. If there's a problem with these theories, it's all the way back at the fundamental assumptions that went into them. Uh, so one of the fundamental assumptions of general relativity of gravity uh, is something called uh, Einstein's equivalence principle, uh, which basically if you were to stand at the top of the leaning tower of Pisa and drop your, your pebble and your boulder, it should hit the ground at the, at the same time. Uh, that might not actually be true. Uh, and if you were to, for example, take two quantum mechanical matter waves, you know, that have different masses, say one's made out of rubidium, one's made out of potassium, uh, and you drop those matter waves simultaneously in an interferometer, do they fall? the same. Uh, and if you do that, not only are you very accurately testing this fundamental assumption of, of gravity, of general relativity, but you're doing it with quantum mechanics. Fantastic. Well, I heard that um, it wasn't too long ago that uh, we brought up uh, to the International Space Station an upgrade to the experiment. What were some of the changes that were made from the first implementation of Cold Atom Lab? Uh, so that's that's one of the great things about uh, being on the ISS that there's a, a a human presence. There's astronauts that are available to uh, upgrade the instrument or or fix it if something were to, to go really wrong, which we haven't haven't needed yet. So the atom interferometer that I talked about uh, that was uh, installed in January of. Uh, 2020 uh, by astronaut Christina Koch. The atom interferometer was installed as part of 
I'm replacing the heart of the instrument, this, this science module. And the, the science module contains uh, the ultra-high vacuum chamber that you need for the thermal isolation of the atoms from the environment. So the atom cooling happens inside a, uh, a vacuum chamber to even allow them to be, to be cold. This is really the, the heart of the instrument. So that, that was replaced about a, a year and a half ago. But just this July 15th, we had uh, a new upgrade that was installed by uh, astronaut uh, Megan MacArthur. And uh, we're actually just in the, in the process of, of testing this now. So th this upgrade, it's a, uh, it's a new frequency source. It's a new source of uh, microwave photons uh, that we can use to manipulate the ultra-cold atoms. And it's going to allow us to cool not just one species of atoms, but two. And this opens up uh, many new uh, possible experiments. Well, Ethan, what is your role in working with the JPL team on Cold Atom Lab? Uh, uh, look, I, I have the best <laughs> job that there is. I, I study quantum mechanics in space. You know, officially, I'm the lead of the engineering model test bed, uh, which is a copy of the uh, instrument on the ground where we test new upgrades or troubleshoot problems. Uh, I'm the deputy lead of Cal's flight operations, and I'm one of the scientists uh, using this instrument to collect data and conduct experiments. And there are teams all over the world using this instrument for their own experiments including three physicists that were such pioneers of this field of atom cooling and trapping that they already have uh, Nobel Prizes. Well, Ethan, I always like to ask my guests to tell me what was that event or person, place, or thing that got them so excited about being the scientists they are today. I call that event a gravity assist. So, Ethan, what was your gravity assist? Well... You know, generally, I, I think I was always excited to be a, a scientist. And, and I wish I could say it's because I grew up reading Newton or Einstein or the Feynman lectures or anything by actual great scientists of, of history. Uh, no, a, as a kid, what excited me was when I would turn on cartoons after school and watch space adventures and superheroes with the understanding that most of the superheroes were scientists, right? It was always some crazy invention that would save the day or the, uh, or the superpowers themselves were derived from a, a freak accident in the lab. And you know, honestly, uh, if you don't mind, something that I'm very passionate about is not what brings students into science, but how they manage to stay in science when it gets tough and it, it will get tough. And look, I've, I've been very lucky to have had great uh, mentors through undergrad an outstanding graduate advisor and mentors at JPL. I think there is great science outreach to get students excited, but I'm most interested in reaching the undergrad and the graduate students who are already working in science, have put in so much work, but are starting to just feel overwhelmed or maybe that they can't do this or that they've made a mistake. And I just want them to know that it's, it's going to work out and to keep going. Um, I, I think motivation or the ability to keep going comes from a story or a narrative that we tell ourselves. And the trouble starts when we hit something where that story fails. So let, let me try to quickly explain how once the story I was telling myself failed. In my PhD, I was working uh, on a very specific application of ultra-cold atoms to test consistency with a string theory conjecture. I had to learn all, the, all this hydrodynamics and thermodynamics 
And to do that, I was reading uh, rocketry textbooks and really starting to wish I had done something more space related. But, but why would NASA hire a, a cold atom scientist? So I got it in my head that I needed to demonstrate what a good physicist I was to be a successful scientist. I would need to graduate in five years. So then towards the end of my fourth year, um, my entire experiment needed to move from one university to another. Um, you know, meticulously aligned optics, a dye laser, uh, 130 watt carbon dioxide laser, optical fibers, laser walking electronics, power supplies, high vacuum components, control hardware, you know, the whole, the whole deal. And uh, I, I thought my, my career was over. I had given myself a completely made up deadline that was now impossible. And, but I thought I was a complete failure. You know, the, the narrative that I've been telling myself was broken and I, I thought seriously about quitting. And uh, I only snapped out of it with a new story, uh, you know, the, the conviction that, okay, if a, a true scientist would show the knowledge, skill, patience uh, to personally rebuild an ultra-cold atom experiment from the ground up and, you know, maybe better than it was even. And I graduated and my advisor told me that he saw an ad that NASA was trying to build a cold atom experiment to put in space. And yeah, I thought, you know, sign me up for that. <laughs> I was on the, the plane to that interview so fast and then the drive to, uh, to move my family out to, to JPL. So I just want any student to be very careful about the story that they're telling themselves and make sure that it's not made up nonsense. Okay. They, they, can, they can generate you know, their, their own gravity assist kind of by changing their uh, perspective. And um, you know, when things go wrong in the lab, you don't get literal superpowers, but th those are the times that, that make you better. And you, you, know, you make mistakes in school so that you don't later. And no one asked me now how long I was in school but they do ask me to lead troubleshooting on the only quantum lab in orbit. So to any graduate student alone in a dark lab right now, don't quit. It's going to be okay. Yeah, that's absolutely tremendous advice. I mean, I remember, of course, in my own graduate career, the ups and downs that occur. Uh, but indeed, you've got to be able to be passionate and stick it out and find your way. And I'm so delighted you were able to do that, Ethan. Thanks so much for joining me and discussing your fantastic experiment and your important career that led you to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Thank you so much, Jim. Great conversation. Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look under the hood at NASA and see how we do what we do. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist. <laughs>